And thank you all for coming this, this afternoon. Um, I guess that's a good thing it's raining. I mean, maybe that's why you're here. You're not unable to garden or run or do whatever you would normally do today. Um, I uh, have the privilege of being here in Dallas for a few days. I'm attending the uh, Texas Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association conference where I'm going to be speaking tonight. Um, I uh, was able to do a workshop there yesterday on food policy, so it was nice to be able to have a couple of other opportunities to meet with folks in the, the Dallas area. Uh, I've come here a couple of times over the last year or so, working with a few groups to see if you know some new ideas can kind of emerge and try to develop some new approaches to uh, food and food systems, hunger, food insecurity, promoting sustainability. Um, I don't know if all those terms resonate with you, but basically we're trying to get better food to everybody regardless of where they come from, what their incomes are, what their backgrounds, what their races. We're interested in food justice is what we call it. And sustainability, meaning in my simple definition that we you know, respect the natural resources upon which our food uh, depends, the production of our food depends. If we deplete our resources or violate our, our natural resources, we won't have them and therefore we won't have food. So I talk about promoting a just and sustainable food system. Those are kind of my two priorities. I also talk a lot about another, another area where I've become, which I, over the course of my kind of career, which now is, goes, goes on to about 40 years, I've been very interested in the role of democracy, the role of community participation, of empowering people to take charge of their own lives, but to also be able to take control of their communities and their own destiny. And food was the one place where I always found there was an opportunity to do that. In fact, when people ask me why I got involved in the work that I'm involved with, <clears throat> uh, I always tell them, I was, you know, as a college kid, I was really interested in social change. I came out of the 60s. Um, some of the things I did then I'm not going to discuss with you at all. <laughs> but I don't think they did any substantial harm. Nevertheless, I, you know, my interest was in social change, and food was the place for me to get a foothold. It was a place where I could start. I think a lot of people started there. Uh, some went in other directions, some stayed. I was one of the people that stayed and continued to find opportunities within this kind of community food idea of developing people's capacity and communities' capacities to feed themselves, to actually meet their own food needs. Um, and that, that road is taking me down in different directions. Sometimes it's uh, been, um, you know, very hands-on, starting gardens, starting farmers markets, food co-ops. Uh, other times it's been more, it, you might say, indirect through public policy, lobbying uh, government, city, state, and national to provide more resources or to provide just, just a better framework and a better focus on the issues of hunger, food insecurity, and promoting a local, just, and sustainable food system. Well, I'm, I'm really happy to report that after all this time and work and uh, investment, um, it's, it, it, people are, it, they're all catching up. They're all catching up, not so, not so much to me, but they're catching up and catching on 
that food is indeed a big deal. I came across this quote the other day from Kurt Vonnegut who once said that, you know, take it from somebody who's been around a thousand years or more, food is pretty much the whole story all the time. And it became really apparent to me how big a deal food had become about a year ago when uh, my mother, who is 86 years old, she lives in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia, and uh, my mom, like other people that age for the most part, are not online. They are not, they don't have, she doesn't have a Facebook page, she doesn't tweet much, and uh, she doesn't even have a typewriter. And uh, she sends me lots of handwritten notes on very nice stationery. Uh, frequently. And she tells me what she's doing. And she usually ends them with something like, Mark, why don't you write? Um, but lately, she had been sending, along with her little notes, all these news clippings. So I'd open up the envelopes, and all these news clippings would fall out onto my <clears throat> kitchen table. And there were always these stories about farmer's markets that were opening up in her area, new community gardens, new food programs, or health and nutrition programs that were starting up, little, just little clips from the you know, local newspaper. <clears throat> so, talking to her on the phone one day, I say, Mom, it's, why are you sending me all this stuff all of a sudden? She says, for the first time in my life, Mark, I actually understand what it is you do for a living. <laughs> so, that was what my mom thinks, and I do think that that's kind of where other people are at, and where, they, where they've come from, and now that they're, you might say, getting some religion on all this. Um, and in fact, there is a lot of good news in the food system. I'm going to share with you some of that good news. I'm going to share with you some of the challenges I see right now uh, to that good news. And I'm also going to then talk a little bit about <coughs> what I think directions, kind of particularly in this kind of local city or metro um, areas, that we're seeing some real progress and interest in food and what's going on around the country. I had the opportunity to speak in many different places, and I kind of follow the work of other, other communities and organizations. So I'm going to share a little bit of that, and hopefully what we can then end up with, and, and the place we'll end up in, uh, is a discussion about you know, what are some directions that you know, maybe Metro Dallas might begin to take. What are some different ways of thinking about food and your food system? Well, okay, so the good news is that we have about 7,200 farmers markets now in the United States. Uh, what's interesting about that, not only is the, it's a fairly big number, but um, a year ago it was only 6,100 farmers markets. So that's about a 20% growth in one year. Now, where else in our economy today are you seeing a 20% growth rate, right? Maybe home foreclosures? Well, farmers markets. We now uh, are, we have local food, but we're talking, we talk about local food, food that's produced somewhere, oh, I mean, there's, there's no real good definition about local, whether it's 10 miles, 50 miles, or 100 miles, but I think using about a 100 mile range, we're looking at about five to seven billion dollars of so-called local food uh, being available in the country, and it's growing rapidly. Organic food um, is now a $25 billion uh, industry uh, and represents $25 billion of sales, rather, in the retail food industry, and is, in fact, the fastest-growing segment of the retail food industry. Um, aided in part by public policy over the last few years, we've seen an unprecedented expansion in farm-to-school programs. How many of you are familiar? Do you know what farm-to-school is? How many people kind of heard that term, perhaps? Okay. Getting food that's produced locally, again, uh, into our schools. That, you know, we 
the, uh, our school systems across the country buy billions and billions of dollars of food every year. Why shouldn't a good percentage of that be coming from local farmers? That would be good for local economies. That would be, you'd be getting usually healthier, fresher food. And um, it's an opportunity as well for young people to learn about where their food comes from. Um, that whole area has been expanding rapidly. Now about 15,000 or so public schools in the United States have farm-to-school programs. That's about 15% of all public schools in the U.S. We're seeing changes in local regulations and ordinances and rules and so forth. Some of the ones, I mean, some of them are fascinating, um, such as actually actually moving away from this uh, this idea that we should all have pristine and immaculately conceived <laughs> suburban lawns, uh, and that we could actually maybe grow food on our front yards. You now we might grow a few tomatoes. I mean, what a travesty! I know, uh, but you know, our our some of our kind of thinking and our aesthetic perhaps and values that kind of came sort of post-World War II into the growth of suburbia uh, maybe went a little too far in restricting what we can do. And it's also not really as sustainable as other approaches in terms of how we kind of shape our, our immediate landscapes. And maybe we should be allowed to actually produce, the, maybe our values and aesthetics are changing around that. Um, in some many, many cities across the country, they've passed uh, regulations uh, or um, you know regulations that allow for the backyard raising of poultry and bees. This has become a really popular uh, area of the direction for the local food movement. We've seen progress in restoring what are referred to as food deserts. Uh, are people familiar with the term food desert? You know, a community or neighborhood, uh, including rural areas that are seriously underserved by uh, good grocery stores, good, you know, usually the best, consider, generally considered to be the best places to buy healthy, affordable food. Uh, up to 23 million uh, Americans, according to the USDA, live in so-called food deserts. Um, the good news here is that a lot of progress has been made in bringing stores back. Public investment, uh, leveraging private investment, is bring, are bringing stores into areas that have not seen them for many, many years. Um, I don't know exactly what the situation is in this area. I'm sure there are areas that are probably underserved. We tend to find them usually in lower income neighborhoods. So that becomes a social justice or a food justice issue. Another area where we've seen progress is in what I was referring to earlier is the this growth in democracy, food democracy. Um, and the way I see it happening is we now have 150 local and state food policy councils in the United States. Now, food policy councils, we have one in Austin. You have, um, one, you have one that's developing right now in San Antonio. There's been an interest in developing one in uh, Houston. And I've actually been working with groups in all three of those cities. And they basically are made up of citizens and public officials, uh, people involved with nonprofit organizations, faith communities, and the private uh, for-profit sectors, such as supermarkets, restaurants, and so forth, meeting together on a regular basis to kind of bring together their collective wisdom around food and their, and their local food system. 
and deciding what can be, what do we need to improve? Where do we have, where are some of the areas that are weak in our food system, such as who's not being well served? <clears throat> and then making recommendations to uh, city or county government or state government about what changes ought to be made in the way that um, government acts or doesn't act when it comes to food. Um, we see a lot of sort of grassroots uh, strategies emerging uh, that are where people are just literally trying to take back their food system. One is literally called People's Grocery in Oakland, California, uh, in West Oakland, which has no supermarkets, very poor area, uh, you know, cut off from just about everything that's uh, attractive and prosperous by highways and, and, uh, and commercial areas. People have started People's Groceries has been very active in turning vacant lots into um, um, uh, gardens, farmers markets, and recently they've started working in the direction of establishing their own supermarket, actually owned and controlled largely by the community itself. In effect, the marketplace, you might say, in many of these communities had failed to serve people who live there. Um, and so people are deciding, well, if they're not going to serve us, we're going to have to figure out how to do this ourselves. So that has been part of the story. We're seeing other changes in regulations that affect our diet, or at least have the potential to affect our diet, um, if we, in fact, will change our behavior, if we'll change our eating behavior. Well, sometimes you need good information, right, in order to change your eating behavior. You know, we just can't expect that it's going to kind of come out of nowhere. Um, Eating is actually more complicated than we think, and um, you know, just the test. I would evidence for that. I'd see the number of books out there on whether it's you know cooking or making the right choices when it comes to food and so forth. But one thing that has been happening is we now are seeing more information about uh, calorie content, particularly in larger chain uh, restaurants. This was started in several cities. It was picked up in the new Healthcare Reform Act and is slowly finding its way out into many of our, many of the cities around here. So if I have information about what's in my food, such as calories, I will hopefully make a better decision. And we've actually, there's some evidence that this is actually already uh, having an impact in uh, New York City, where they started this about three years ago. They piloted this whole effort because the city itself decided they wanted to uh, mandate um, calorie counting information among in large uh, chain uh, restaurants. Um, McDonald's started to decrease the, the size of its products, its serving sizes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they knew they, they couldn't necessarily change the content of the food, but you know McDonald's, I mean, you could buy a, you know, a 50 gallon Coca-Cola, you know, McDonald's, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. And, you know, um, I'm surprised that anybody walks out of there alive sometimes based on some of the stuff I've seen them eat. Hopefully you'll make a better decision, but they have actually reduced the size of many of their products to, in effect, lower the calorie content. So I'm learning, so I'm saying, all right, I get less calories because I eat less. Well, that, there's a concept for you. Um, um, so, you know, this, this is the good news. There's a lot, and, and, I, and I said, I said before, I've been involved in this work for 40 years, and I've never seen so much progress as I've seen in the last five years. Uh, taking place in this country. It's just really phenomenal. But the thing that still is bugging me, the thing that I, I come back to is in the 
in this area of democracy, who controls our food system, who makes the decisions, and who ultimately is going to benefit. And I have my little, this is a little, uh, uh, my little uh, prop that I carry around with me. And it's, a, it's just a little tube of chapstick. That's all it is. And it looks harmless enough. Would you just read right what this says here? Can I read? I don't know. Oh, yeah, Monsanto. Monsanto. It says Monsanto on this chapstick. You all know who Monsanto is. It's a large biotech firm, largest manufacturer, distributor of genetically modified seeds in the country. Now, regardless of where you stand on genetically engineered or genetically modified food or seeds, and they are becoming very, very prevalent, um, the reason I have this here, not because this is genetically modified chapstick, you don't have to worry, but because it was in this uh, backpack, or what is left of this backpack, and on this backpack it says Legislative Agriculture Chairs Summit. And this summit was held last year at a very plush resort in uh, Arizona. And the people that could attend the summit were the heads of all the state legislative agriculture committees. These are the committees at the state level that do most of the work on agriculture-related and often food-related legislation that comes before their respective states. They were brought in by Monsanto and uh, Archer Daniel Midlands, Syngenta, the biggest who's who food corporations in the United States. And for three days, they didn't pay, none of these people paid a dime uh, to be there. They brought their spouses, they were all paid for by the food corporations. And they were pretty much kind of fed whatever, uh, not just literally, but uh, intellectually fed everything that the industry wanted them to know. And this backpack was packed with all kinds of stuff, all kinds of propaganda from the, I call it propaganda, from the industry. Um, do you and I have the same access to those decision makers, to those policy makers? You know, I, I certainly don't. I work with a number of grassroots organizations that try real, real hard to get bills passed in legislatures. I've been working in Connecticut and I worked in New Mexico, I have colleagues that have worked in many other states. I tell stories about others who worked on food and farming issues all over the country in my book, uh, Food Rebels. And it's kind of the same story all the time. When you try to get some, make some change in the system, if it goes up against what the food industry wants, you're not going to make that change. Um, so, you know, it's like a lot of what goes on in this country in the, in the policy-making arena, unfortunately, is that too much of it is, you know, favors the industry, and too few of us have an opportunity to be as influential. Um, and it's part of the reason uh, that we have, uh, for instance, 90% of our soybean acreage is now in genetically engineered seed, 60% of our cotton, 55% of our corn. The U.S. Department of Agriculture approved genetically engineered uh, salmon, alfalfa, and sugar beets. And whenever there's an attempt, again, regardless of what you think about this, uh, whenever there's an attempt to protect property owners who may live next door to a, genetic, a farm that's using genetically modified seed, 
um, or to protect you against certain you know invasive actions by the industry. And I, there are many of those examples. The industry always comes in and just stomps the attempts by legislatures to make any change. Um, so it's part of the reason that even in spite of the growth that we have seen in the changes in our food uh, supply over the years, it's still very, very small. And it still has a long way to go. You know, even with that, you know, that $25 billion, for instance, per year of organic food, that's only 4%. Only 4% of all or all the food in this country. Um, only 10%, if you, even by the most generous measures, and that's what I would consider kind of riding downhill on your bicycle with the wind to your back, um, 10% of our food falls into the category of what we would call green, environmentally, you know, high quality, uh, doing no damage to the environment, food that is fair, meaning that we also t paid attention to how that food is produced. Farm workers, for instance, are they being paid well? Are their working conditions fair? And food that's healthy. Only 10% of our food is really falling into that category. And this is based on research that was done by uh, people at the Kellogg Foundation. And you know, in spite of, but in spite of this growth in in a, in a food industry that is increasingly reliant on industrial forms of food production, uh, large uh, uh, factory farm livestock operations. I don't know if anyone's ever been to one of those, or even even looking at them from the highway. I've been inside a few. They're very disturbing. You know, you see pictures or images of how our animals are raised, and I have changed my eating behavior as a result of those images. Not so much even the, the images have provoked me at least to go and find more information and to learn more about how that food is produced. And the more you learn, the more disturbed you get. In spite of that, in spite of our use of biotechnology, antibiotics in animal, animal production, uh, heavy use of agrochemicals, um, we still have some real serious food problems in this country. 50 million people, uh, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, are hungry or food insecure. And this is based on uh, measures that are taken annually and on a series of questions that basically determine at a minimum that people have dif a difficult time getting food uh, procuring food you know, through normal channels. You know, they don't have enough money to go to the grocery store, for instance. That's the main, the, uh, main reason that uh, we have food insecurity. Um, and we also have 50, excuse me, 47 million people on the food stamp program right now, which is now known as SNAP. And that's the highest number we've ever had in this country. I go back, I kind of keep going back and looking at statistics, and I give these talks a lot and I realized I have to update my numbers like every six months. I, could, I went back and looked at some numbers I had from just three years ago. And at that time, the uh, enrollment in the food stamp program was down around 27 or 28 million people. Now it's up to 47 million people in just three years. You know, I, I think about that and I think, God, what does that say about this country? We also have seen a, in a huge growth over the last uh, 30 years in food banks and emergency feeding sites and food pantries. And I raise this, I raise this issue 
because I, I personally find it problematic. Uh, I worked when I was in Hartford very long and hard, among other things, in developing a number of food programs, including a food bank in the early 1980s. Uh, became one of the largest, well, the second largest food bank in New England. And, um, you know, at the time we saw, you know, lines forming at the, at the three or four emergency food places we had at that time. And these were the old, kind of the old line charities, old line uh, Salvation Army um, <clears throat> settlement houses that dated back to the 1900s. A couple of soup kitchens that were run at, uh, by some, by some uh, Sisters of Charity. You know, that was kind of what the norms were prior to 1980. But in starting about that time, the, there was an explosion in poverty, uh, there was an economic downturn, the uh, federal government backed away from many of its kind of safety net commitments that had been uh, sort of gradually increasing over the previous 20 years or so, and there was a huge, uh, there was a crisis in effect uh, to, um, that resulted in a demand for more food. Today, in my former hometown of Hartford, Connecticut, uh, we have, or the greater Hartford area, I should say, we have almost 400 places where people can get emergency food compared to just a handful uh, 30 years prior. Across the country, we now have 206 food banks, you know, the large, very large warehouse operations. In 1980, there were none, okay, none. So we've gone, we've gone from zero to 206. Now I raise this because I'm not particularly proud of that legacy. I'm not particularly proud of the fact that as a nation, we've become so dependent on that system of food distribution <coughs> that so many people are not able to get food from normal channels. They don't have the resources to be able to get food that way. Compared to other nations in the world, we have fallen far behind, and we've become very dependent on that form of, of uh, you know, food and poverty relief, and uh, very dependent on um, our own government, which now is up to about $100 billion a year of food assistance. If you take all the programs that are run by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, from food stamps to uh, all the child nutrition programs, including school lunch and so forth, Women, Infant, and Children program, we're, we're probably over $100 billion by now. Again, we don't see anything uh, comparable to this in other nations, developed develop or undeveloped nations in the world, because of a much more comprehensive approach to social welfare. So I have my concerns, and I'll be frank about it, I have my concerns about you know, continuing to rely on uh, emergency food assistance as a long-term solution. It is a short-term solution, no doubt, one we need now. But it is also not one that I think we should continue to invest in year after year and ignore all the other causes or all the other problems associated with food and poverty. Because remember, poverty is the cause of food insecurity and hunger in this country. It's not the lack of food. It's our inability to be able to buy food. One other point of you know concern, in addition to food insecurity and hunger, one in an area which I think is really eclipsing the the the, the is, um, food insecurity and hunger is obesity. 
Um, we are we now are about 65% of us are obese or overweight. Our children are I think the last numbers I've seen on third graders um, in this country is about somewhere in the 20 to 25% obese range. And the Center for Disease Control is telling us that unless we make serious changes uh, in our lifestyle and our diets, uh, we will have this generation of children will be the first in the nation, uh, the history of this nation, to not live as long as its parents' generation. Um, the other, other factor we see is that by the year 2050, unless changes are made in these rates and in our diets and, and physical activity patterns, uh, one-third of us will be diabetic in the U.S. by the year 2050. And these are serious numbers. You know, these are you know serious, a very serious uh, situation that our our young people, our this young generation, as well as a, our generation that I'm in, uh, are facing. And unless we begin to pay attention and make some radical changes, we're headed for serious trouble. Uh, we're already seeing that. Um, um, You know, see, we're seeing the results of this, and the, the leading cause of uh, rejection in the military you know, for, for physical reasons, or somebody's not able to serve, to you know, not eligible to be in the military, is now obesity. Now, I'm a great fan of world peace and ending war, but I don't want to do it this way. I don't want to do it because they're all just too fat to fight. I prefer that we find another way and end war fair uh, around the world, not because we all kind of can't, we're all waddling out there um, uh, onto the field. Now there's another one other area, one other area where I, I'm concerned as well, and I'm sure you've heard about this in your, in the, in the, in the media, and uh, it's food safety. Now, how, how many times have we seen stories about, um, you know, food that's, that's dirty? Uh, we're getting salmonella poisoning or E. coli. Uh, many deaths result every year in the United States from unsafe food. Um, I, I sort of like to paraphrase something George Burns once said that uh, I'm old enough to remember you know, when uh, sex was dirty and food was clean. Now it's kind of the reverse. Now part of that's good, part of the change is good, but the other part is not. And you know, one thing I find really interesting about that is that most of the, most of the food that is, ends up causing problems comes from very large factory type operations. It comes out of our industrial food system. Uh, the, the, one, the one case I, uh, I cite, uh, because it's fairly recent, within the last year or two, is the recall of eggs. A half a billion eggs were recalled because of salmonella poisoning that resulted in 1,500 salmonella-related illnesses. Um, and when we they looked into the where those the factory farms where those eggs were produced. I mean, these are just huge operations, and you see, I probably have seen pictures of how chickens are just packed into very small cages, eggs drop down, roll down a conveyor belt. You know, the chickens can barely walk; they don't have enough space to walk, and they're often bred to not to make it even difficult for them to walk. Uh, but in addition to that, many of these places had been cited. Uh, uh, for violations over the last 15 years of animal cruelty, surface water pollution, and worker safety regulations. So violations in all those categories, in addition to the fact that they're producing dirty eggs. 
And when I looked at that, and I went and I went back to all that material that was in this backpack, all this propaganda that was in this backpack, I came across this one. It's called American Egg Farming, How We Produce an Abundance of Affordable, Safe Food. And it's put out by the United Egg Producers, which is an industry association. It has a nice little wicker basket on the cover, few eggs in it, just the kind you use to go into your own backyard chicken coop, no doubt, and pick up few eggs. Well, down at the bottom it says, the subtitle is, and how animal activists may limit our ability to feed our nation and the world. So, this was put into this backpack, along with Monsanto's stuff and other stuff, to try to encourage legislators to curtail activists, come up with laws, rules, and so forth, to make sure that People like you and me who are concerned about our health and the health of our children and the direction of our food system don't get in the way. And that is, in fact, what I see every day. Concerns that, you know, by the industry that we, the consumers, are going to get in their way. The policymakers are going to get in their way and not allow them to do what they want to do. In fact, we've seen very direct outcomes from that. Uh, there are three states now that have recently passed laws that have criminalized pho photography inside or out of a factory or any farm, but in particularly designed to protect so-called factory farms from you know, those who, like the uh, uh, you know, various animal rights organizations like the Humane Society, where people have gone in as employees undercover and taken photographs of the conditions in those work in those uh, operations and put them up on YouTube and some of them have shown up on that on the movie uh, Food Inc and others. So in those in those states now it is a criminal it's a criminal offense if you take those photographs. Um, and I think hmm, all right. You know, I maybe don't want somebody walking around my business taking photographs. Maybe I have some rights in that regard. But at the same time, nobody's telling me how you're producing that food. You're not, there's nothing transparent about your operation. I want to know more about what is going on there. And if you're not going to tell me, then we're going to have to find some other way. And don't use legislators to try to create laws that, that deny me the right or access to information the right to know. So this is where I see the standoff kind of heading in our food system. It's, and, it begin, and it begins to pivot around this whole idea of food democracy. The last, the, the last case I'm going to cite is, is a, or two, two other cases which are, are basically non-agricultural, uh, but still go to the same point of how uh, the industry gains influence and exercises its influence. It's in um, Ohio. Now, Cleveland, which I'll talk about in a few minutes, is one of the cities that have taken a very aggressive approach towards food and health and urban farming and this whole idea of becoming healthy and more self-reliant when it comes to food. Really interesting story about, and I write about it in my book, about what they've been doing in Cleveland. Well, one of the things they wanted to do was they wanted to ban trans fats from uh, the all of the as a nutrient within the uh, particularly within the restaurant industry in the city. Uh, New York City had done this two or three years prior and uh, done successfully. It wasn't a problem. 
Uh, they found substitutes and people are eating better now that they got rid of trans fats. Well, somebody in the state got wind of Cleveland's interests. And uh, because they had a new administration, a very Republican administration, I will say, uh, they, uh, the state uh, took what was called preemptive action. They, they passed preemptive legislation that said a city does not have the authority to ban trans fats or to make any other significant change in nutrient content of food that is sold within its limits, within its jurisdiction. Only the state of Ohio has that right. Now this is pretty unusual, pretty unusual action. But it shows you what else is going on. It shows you what the industry is trying to do to protect its flank. And uh, at the same time, take away the, what I would consider the sovereignty of a city to make decisions about its own health and its own future. So it's for all these reasons and all these stories that I'm, um, and, and the, the, all the, the kind of conflicts and challenges we see right now in our food system that you know, Monsanto puts their chapstick in these little bags, all this propaganda shows up in bags, little refrigerator magnets telling you about the wonders of, of uh, agro-sciences agri show up in this bag. You know, it's just part of a much larger strategy to try to change or pr protect their bottom line, but at the same time limit our ability to be uh, to control our own lives. So that's my story, and I'm going to stick to it for today. Uh, but I'm also going to tell you the stories that I think are 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 more promising that show a different direction in the country, and ones that I've been very supportive of, and both in my writing and as well as in my, um, you know, my more hands-on work, you might say. And, uh, and it really comes down to local action. It comes down to work at the city level. And this is where I'd encourage you to think a little bit about what you might do in Dallas. Uh, I talked about Cleveland, so let me lead off with Cleveland. What they did there, which I found just fascinating, was that among the problems they had, and their biggest one was the loss, a, a huge loss in population, went from one million people down to 500,000 people over the course of 10 years. This resulted in all kinds of abandonment of property, demolitions, and resulting vacant lots. So rather than just look at all these vacant lots, they decided, hmm, we're going to start to convert them into uh, gardens. So both a com combination of efforts by uh, activists, um, organizers, uh, garden organizations uh, began to bring more of those lots into production, working with neighbors to kind of take control of those little lots and kind of create green spaces and gardens. And um, they did that and then they started working with the city and a city food policy council that had been created about five years ago. They said we need additional protection because sometimes we start these gardens but then somebody decides, well, we're just going to come in and take them away and put up a parking lot. Um, and so they changed their zoning regulations to provide some protection for people who are trying to you know, create some garden spaces. They even went further and said, we're, we're interested, we have enough vacant land that we could have urban farms, not just gardens, but farms. And so if you can put together a, a, a contiguous piece of contiguous pieces of property that equal an acre in size, you can now uh, qualify for an urban farm designation in the zoning code. 
They then looked at their uh, economic development resources, and every city has money they put into economic development. They were able to convince the economic development folks to start to put money into food enterprises. So they actually started provi literally providing seed grants, small uh, investments um, by the city uh, to, um, to people who wanted to start urban farms. And so they were buying seeds and other inputs and a few, few implements and a little bit of fencing and so forth. But they also put some money into other kinds like food processing businesses, small scale businesses that started to create some jobs. Then they went to the other end of, your, of their authority, you might say, and they started to look at purchasing. They're spending, um, they're spending uh, tens of millions of dollars a year in Cleveland, uh, public institutions, for food schools, to hospitals, to prisons, and other public institutions. And they decided they wanted to give some preference to food that is produced in the city or near the city, as well as food that was produced organically or sustainably. And they create a kind of a tiered system whereby if I'm growing food in Cleveland and I'm growing it organically, I get 10% more for that food than if I, uh, if I was a farmer, say, 100 miles away and not growing food organically. So there's a preference given to local food. Uh, they also, as I said earlier, they, pa I know if I said, uh, they, they passed legis uh, a change in their uh, uh, ordinances that um, <clears throat> now permit um, the backyard raising of poultry and bees. So now in Cleveland, you can have four hens and one beehive, even in a really small backyard, city backyard. And they have been pushing the whole health agenda in general, health, a healthy Cleveland, healthy city. They want to be kind of known as the sort of a city of health. And uh, in spite of this setback with trans fats and this preemption by the state of Ohio, they're continuing to move ahead very aggressively. They're working closely with some of their big institutions. The Cleveland Clinic, which I believe is the largest employer now in Cleveland, is beginning to, you know, is, a, is playing a big role in trying to move this, the city in a healthier direction. Um, the Case Western Reserve University is purchasing a lot of its food from these local sources, as are other colleges and universities in the, in the Cleveland area. Um, we see in uh, other, many other examples uh, of people, you know, of, of good programs and good ideas. Another story I tell in my book is from Austin, Texas, where the, a great program called the Sustainable Food Center operates. And one of the programs they have within the Sustainable Food Center is called the Happy Kitchen. And it trains uh, mostly low-income moms in uh, healthy food uh, preparation, buying, and so forth. And they have some, I, I spent several days there, I interviewed about 30 of their participants, uh, I, w I watched their, their classes taking place, they're taught by their peers, people who are learning how to change their diet are being taught by people who are just like them. And fairly simple stuff, basic whole foods, you know, unprocessed foods, how to prepare simple but tasty meals from that, that's the kind of education we need in order to change people's behavior. Sometimes it is really, really hard to make a change. I tell my own story in the book about how, you know, it wasn't until I was 40 years old before I really learned how to cook. It's only because my, my, my wife and I got divorced and now I had to learn how to cook myself. You know, that was the reason. And I was like this lazy guy, you know, typical lazy guy who thought he was going to let his wife do all the cooking for him. 
Well, finally, I learned how to cook, but it took me a lot of practice and a lot of help in order to learn how to do it in a helpful way. So I have my own personal story in there. Um, I tell a story about a food policy council in Boulder, Colorado, which had, went through a very painful process to have to actually resist an effort by, really supported by Monsanto, to plant genetically modified sugar beet seeds on public land. Long, drawn-out battle, a nasty public hearing, uh, the industry fighting back in some of the dirtiest ways you can imagine, but the people in the city of, in the county of Boulder, Colorado, you know, after a long process of deliberation, decided to reject this whole idea of using genetically modified seed on their land. And now they're beginning, they've developed a whole uh, planning process to look at how they can take this publicly owned land and begin to move it into more sustainable forms of food production that will um, actually be producing food for people living in that community. Sugar beets get processed and become part of our you know, overwhelming calorie count in this country. Uh, they're looking at how can we begin to convert this land to more fruit and vegetable production, among other things. New York City is, a, is like, has kind of been leading the way in many, in many uh, respects. And um, it was interesting when I discovered that three, three of the four leading candidates for the next, for the next mayor, the mayor Bloomberg is leaving office, after God knows how many years. And the people, all three of the four leading candidates, all have food platforms. They have all taken positions on food in New York City. And probably the, the, the leading candidate is Kathleen uh, Quinn, speaker of the New York City Council, had launched a program called FoodWorks. That was her platform. And FoodWorks is a very detailed plan about how the city is going to use its resources and its functions and its authorities to promote a really healthy food system, to make sure that every community, every neighborhood of the city has access to good healthy food. How can they support the development of more farmers markets? How can they promote more urban gardens? How can they do more to actually encourage the food industry to operate and even come to the city? Uh, there's many barriers that, you know, cities, cities just, you know, they have a way, like any bureaucracy, of making things just generally difficult because they want this kind of one-size-fits-all approach. It's just the way bureaucracies tend to be. But when you put food on the agenda, when you finally say that food is really important and it really matters to this community, and we know that if we do it right, we can also benefit our economy at the same time, then things begin to change. You know, government begins, begins to kind of come into, in line as a partner rather than as a problem or as an obstacle. And that is what is happening now in many cities. Food is going onto the public agenda, and it's now part of what cities do. City, city planning is one example. The American Planning Association, a few years ago, adopted a whole set of guidelines that are part of our sort of professional canon, you might say at this point, uh, that direct planners and provide planners with information and tools about how to incorporate food and food system thinking into their everyday planning work. So if you went to your city planner and said, hey, I want to talk about food with you. I want to talk about what our city might look like if we're looking kind of long-term in terms of design and zoning and so just a long-term planning strategy. 
Where does food fit in? Well, they may not have the answer for you right now, but you have something to fall back on, which is this framework provided by the American Planning Association. Um, just two weeks ago, the mayor of Boston, Mayor Menino, uh, launched the uh, Food Policy Task Force at the U.S. Conference of Mayors. He held a press conference. Many mayors signed on. They said, now food is important to us as mayors all over the country. Uh, the um, Mayor Menino, I know, has been in, in Boston. He had a, they had a two-day conference just on urban agriculture that City Hall sponsored. He has a position that he established. He calls it the food czar, which I don't really like that term, but that's how what he decided to call it, a person whose job it is to deal with food issues and food policy out of working right out of his office. Uh, this big conference really focused on all the ways that the city of Boston could promote urban agriculture rather than be a disincentive or an obstacle to the growth of urban agriculture. What can it do to actively promote it? Um, I was in Louisville, Kentucky about two weeks ago. Uh, I get around a lot, so it's kind of... That's how I know these places. Anyway, so I got a, it was in Louisville, Kentucky, where they were launching the, their new Food Policy Council. They had about 120 people come to this event to announce the start of this Food Policy Council, which had actually been in the organizing process now for over a year. And the mayor of Louisville shows up, and there was actually had been some squabbling a few days before between this group of, of community activists who had been organizing this Food Policy Council and the mayor's office, and the mayor suddenly realizing that food was now so important that 120 people would show up at a press conference about it, and he announces his own food agenda, which wasn't entirely compatible with the one that the food the citizens group had was thinking about, but they got together, they figured it out, took a little bit of squabbling, a little bit of conflict, but to me the interesting thing is, again, as somebody who's been in this business for 40 years, is that mayors are actually standing up and claiming you know, responsibility for, and hopefully they're going to get some credit for, what goes on with food in their cities. That's the good news. Even though it's going to be a little bit of tension along the way, there's going to be some, some competition, at least there's competition for it. I remember going into the mayor of the city of Hartford 20 years ago and said, hey, Mr. Mayor, what do you think about making Hartford a, a food city, and let's have a food policy council, and let's think about how we can get really healthy food in the city of Hartford. He looked at me like I was from Mars. He had no, I mean, our mayor, like, sort of classic mayoral profile in the United States is about this tall, mm -hmm. right, and about that wide. Mm -hmm. That was our mayor. And uh, health was not his top concern. Mm -hmm. Now he died of a heart attack. On four, he was a great guy, actually. died at the age of 55 from a heart attack. Um, and they were also at that time looking at, they were running out of money in the city, like many cities, unfortunately, and they were saying, what can, I, what can we do to raise money? And one of the ideas they came up with was to sell advertising on municipal vehicles. And when we found out that McDonald's and Dunkin' Donuts and um, Pizza Hut advertising was going to show up on municipal vehicles, and we knew that the city of Hartford's obesity and diabetes rates were four times that of the rest of the state, we screamed, and we screamed loudly, and we said, you can't do this. Uh, and besides, isn't it going to look bad when you see a donut ad on the side of a police car? 
<laughs> so we were able to get them to change their mind. But that's how, I mean, when you're, I mean, not only are they not thinking about food, they're just thinking about it in absolutely the wrong way, the most wrong way possible. Story goes on, I can list city after city, and it, again, kind of that whole effort and that whole, there's, there's competition, but there's an explosion of interest in all, in all places now around food and making, putting it on the public agenda. So I'm just going to wrap up and saying that I think that really the critical factors here, if you're thinking about, if you're thinking about how do we bring this together, is there some way we might begin to make the, more of this, more of these connections, say in Dallas? Think about planning. Think about public policy. That you know, it's not just the projects and individual work that you do, in say whether they're your own businesses or your own faith communities or in your own nonprofit organizations. Think about also that public policy connection both you know, city government, county government, maybe even state government, and create more partnerships between that, those private interests and that public interest. Think about diverse participation by stakeholders. When I think about changing my food system, I'm not going to just look at one way of doing it. I don't see it as just about how do we get more food to hungry people. I see it as being about that, but I also see how do we harness the economic value of food in our community? How do we kind of, how do we address quality of life issues in our community when it comes to food? Urban gardening, farmers markets, open space, working more with protecting our farmers perhaps on the, on the metro fringe. That's all part of our quality of life. It's our food system and we really need to bring that into the discussion. So it's those, bringing those partners together. I mean, just think about food this way. Each of us spend at the grocery store food that we bring home at home to bring home about fifty dollars a week. One person about fifty dollars a week, times uh, fifty-two weeks out of the year, times your population of Dallas, whatever it is. Do that number; it's way into the billions, tens of billions of dollars. I'm sure that's your food economy. Can't you harness that in a way that's going to create jobs and create growth and? have positive impacts on the quality of life in your communities. Um, so don't focus just on one issue. Focus on all of them. Focus on that big food system picture. Try to bring everybody to the table. I think too often we, we, we might use a crisis as a way to kind of, all right, we've got to go do something now. We're going to go, just go do this one thing because we have this one problem. Well, if you only focus on that crisis, and you do it and you just try to mitigate that crisis, one way or another that's going to come back again unless you're looking at the big picture, unless you're looking at the underlying causes and making this a, looking for more systemic solutions. So that's the way I would kind of advise you in a friendly and respectful way at this point. I think there is a good opportunity in not only, uh, well, it's a good opportunity all over the country right now to make food an even bigger deal and have a bigger impact on the quality of our li lives and the communities. But I think there's a really good opportunity in Dallas right now. So I'd urge you to explore that, see what you could do to maybe tease out some of these issues, see how they, what I've said maybe has some relevance to your lives and to the life of the city, and uh, see what you can do. And I'm here to help. So thank you. <laughs>